0: Hello and welcome to the D and D 420 podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better dungeon master. I'm your host Eric M. Hunter, and I am a struggling game master trying to figure out how to tell a better story. Joining me shortly is Jimmy Shields. He is the creator of D and D 420 and an avid D and D fan with over 30 years of experience. In this episode, we dive back into my world, go into every single region, describing what the nuances of those regions and Figuring out when is a good time to start playing this game. So the homework was really diving into all the regions of the map that I created um, and giving them some sort of description purpose, flora, fauna, uh, that kind of thing. And I went through every region, which there was not a whole lot of regions. Uh, There's maybe like, what, 10, 8 or 10? I, I could probably count them. But And I, uh, what I had mentioned about in the last episode, which was kind of falling for that Star Wars-esque, oh, this is an ice planet, and this is a desert planet, and this is a forest planet, like that one uh, topographical um, oddity. Of, of every region so wildly different. And then I remembered that people exist in this, in this world and that sometimes do. what can make, what <laughs> can make this region interesting is the people. So some of them, I, I felt like I, I did f- a fairly interesting idea, especially as on a first get. Um, so for instance, in the um, like the Northern Eastern area, it's kind of more of a mountainous area, um, like high, high mountains, like Mount Everest mountains. Uh, And I was like, oh, okay. There would be another. Why not have another religious sect here? But like, they consider themselves like the the welcoming party for whenever the if if or when the architects ever come back. That they're going to come from this side of uh, to to meet them. So they want to be the first ones there. Um, And I also described it as um, the ground is kind of broken up with parts of the machine kind of jutting and shooting out from the ground, Uh, like they're broken. Uh, which could again I was thinking of Oh, this I could explain this as something else is like maybe they were trying to build something else here uh, and it just exploded and now this is all that's left um, trying to go for that idea that this world's been lived in before and these people are here now kind of idea okay, um, yeah. and I did the the opposite on the uh, the opposite side of the world and um, let me see oh and Ofra I described Offer as a fairly mountainous area. Offer offers uh, luscious vegetation that provides many flowers that can be used for medicine, supplies, supplements, and things of uh, like a hallucinogenics and alcohol. Uh, The most interesting is the fact that nothing of the machine is found here, not underground or any surrounding area. Uh, The land isn't as mountainous. uh, Where I'm sorry, the land where it's not. Uh, mountains is extremely flat there's actually small parts that the sea that fall in a way that would suggest a sort of man-made irrigation system so again i was like oh this would be a cool like maybe whoever originally founded this place started here so clearly they wouldn't destroy where they live they would build you know some sort of a culture um that can provide for them and then if they build the machine after that they would want to do that away from where they live and the off chance that something dangerous may have happened like in the other area on the other side. You know what I mean? Okay. So I stuck with what you were saying about like building character into the map um, without having to introduce characters, I guess if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And then after I got done with all of this and and all the areas, I was like, I need to redraw this map. I need to be more delicate with it. I need to take more time to build it. Um, because now I feel like I've got a pretty good start on <laughs> building a world that like somebody can take and be like, Oh, I don't want to play in D and D. I don't want to play in uh, sword coast or whatever. Like I want to play, uh, somewhere else. And this is now a unique thing that somebody could role play in it,
1: And you know what, here's, here's what's cool. It's red. It's ready. You know, and, and I, we've kind of joked around about it a little bit the whole time. Like, is it ready? You no, know, you got a lot more work to do. Sure. Well, I got news for you. You're always going to feel like you have more work to do. Right. Five campaigns from now, you're going to feel like you got a lot more work to do. I've been gaming in my game world, the primary one, for 27 years. And I feel like today I still have a lot of work to do.
0: Yeah.
1: The world does not have to be finished. You do not have to be complete. It does not need to be earth You're never going to get to that point, man. Sure. Never. I mean, here's like, and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Like, the Sword Coast, you think that was written by one guy?
0: Exactly. Right. No, there was a team. I mean, it started with one, and then it's been a thousand times iterated on. Yeah. the Sword
1: Coast is one person, maybe, or then this or that part was one person. But then all these other things were interjected in, and it's still not complete. Right. Does it talk about everything that we could think of? No, it does not. It leaves lots of things gray intentionally. And you will do the same thing. Leave lots of parts of your world unexplored or um, undefined. You can even give names to it, but don't give a definition. Or maybe things about it, but don't finish it. Mm -hmm. That way when somebody wants to... You have an aspiring writer turn in a four-page backstory about their character that you love... You can be like, hey man, a half a page or up to two pages would be great, but you've gone way above and beyond, and here's what I'd like to do. And this isn't like encouraging or rewarding system, but in a way, like, why don't I take what I love about what you wrote, you know, can we talk about changing it a little bit so it fits in with what I've got over here? and right. tell them about that, and they'll go, oh, that's kind of what I was thinking. Well, what if we change this to that, and then we plug it right in, and now your thing, you wrote it, and you, when you make decisions about it in character, you don't have to ask me, because it's on you. I reflect right. it back to the player. like You want to make your own monastery, and when you turn in your backstory, it's all this really cool shit about this really perfect monastery that would fit right into my game world. I love it absolutely boom i don't need i don't need law enforcement for this area because his monastery is militant and has a hundred monks and has all these things and now i just plug them in as the law enforcement for this area that i didn't know what i was
0: going to do right so it's like solving a problem before you kind of knew that you had a problem
1: exactly because so many times and myself included have i written too much a you don't get to use it all when you write too much right for world building campaign building anything you won't get to use it all
0: well and as somebody who is an aspiring writer like myself um that like the outlining the the character backstory four pages like at the end of the day what you're doing is you're avoiding the real work which is writing the story and i've realized that um I'm, I'm, So I'm obviously in the past couple of episodes, I'm having more fun doing this than I did in the beginning because I think in the beginning, I just didn't have a clear idea of what I was doing, which is, you know, the whole idea of this series is to kind of learn as you go. And I've realized now that it's exactly what you said, like it's never going to be done. Like there will always be something else. There's always going to be someone else. There's always going to be a characteristic that... Um, wasn't uh, explored initially, and you know, as you play, you may need to do it later. Um, but, like, you know, I'm, I'm wasting. I don't. Know, I won't say wasting time, but I'm using time that could be better spent playing D&D, which For- is kind of the whole idea. Perhaps now, the one thing that you can't dodge is you're getting
1: into it now. It's really fun. Like I've, I can't tell you how many documentaries I've watched in the past three weeks trying to get my flora and fauna right for Dragon's Claw. Mm -hmm. Um, I have this really cool looking island and these really cool names for the kingdoms and a kind of interesting story about how the people interact, how they came here, they came here at different times, how they view one another, all these things, how they work together what the imports, exports are, what kind of monsters I'm going to populate. But the thing I'm having the most trouble with is deciding I've got a hundred things, bullet points, maybe, in flora and fauna. I can't use them all. I mean, I can, because if I was going to create a real true ecosystem, I could, but I don't want to have to do that. Sure. I want to put the interesting things in there. These are the types of things that you can find. And I might even have a couple of lines in the overall, like, You can find trout and these type of fish and whatever in all of these waters and then you get an idea of what type of waters they are if you as a dm want to know more about what type of fish there and you're going to storytell in the game world that i've made you could say oh there are trout there google what kind of water do trout like right can i find trout what fish coexist with trout boom just do it that way or this island these are the temperatures he said, and this is the kind of location. It's tropical, uh, but it's not you know, like it gets a ton of rain in one season and super dry for another. Like, oh, that if you know those things, you can easily plug whatever you want to as a DM playing in another game system or gaming world into there. So I don't need to write all that. If I want to do it later on because of the campaign we're going to tell, sure, I can put more stuff in there. And if somebody says, oh, is there a fucking such-and-such tree here? Well, I didn't name every tree species. Does it fit here? Sure, why not? Now I'm going to make a note of it because you made an interesting location about it. Right. You know, because you had a question about your character's backstory, or you had a question about something you wanted to do in-game because of something you read online or in a book somewhere. Let's make it work. And so... If you're, and here's a thing to keep in mind as well, because you are writing a story, a book, as well as a game world. Those are different. Like um, when you're writing a world for a, a book or a story, which I, you know, I studied a little bit of this in the past when I was younger, um, in some creative writing classes. The things you want to know about that world are a little more in depth, and they deal with that's directly related back to one story, we're going to set multiple stories here, stories that we don't know exist. We're going to have people playing in this game that we don't know what characters they're going to be. We don't know if they're going to be good. We don't know if they're going to be evil. We don't know if they're going to be rangers or magic users or what have you. So we need to leave it. a lot of that stuff wide open. That's why I keep saying, you don't have to write a ton, a little paragraph right. here, a little bit there, leave spaces, leave spaces. Um, you're going to get some super fun players To that will come up with some super fun stuff. Um, but there will need to be some guidelines set. And like, I don't always set these guidelines when I'm making an area um, such as like how high of level of magic do we have here? Is this going to be, you know, are there? Is there one person who's fifteenth level in this city, and that's the king? Is his vizier, or his advisor, or his uh, chief cleric, are they ninth level, or are they also fifteenth level? You know, then that that starts to define how powerful people are. If your king is twentieth level and he's surrounded by a whole bunch of eighteenth level people. That has a massive effect on the game when you start right. you start looking through spells and things and be like oh and this actually happened to us in a game where a DM wanted to create kind of a dark sun like setting. Well, for those of you who know, dark sun is a second edition setting. It didn't get ported into third edition until much later, and I believe I could be wrong, but I believe that it was even um, like a small independent studio that did it. It wasn't even like something that you could go buy in a store. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think someone just did it and released it online, like spammed it out there. But I don't know for sure. I've never played in a third edition Dark Sun setting. Um, I've played in Dark Sun in every edition because I always have a desert in my game and Dark Sun is the catalyst for it. Um, However, and I played the shit out of Dark Sun back in second edition. However, they wanted to do this thing where you could uh, starve or how do you move an army from one place to another um, without them starving and all the food supply and water supply. And they could drink like we're in a desert. It's hard to get water and you have to carry all this water. But then your cleric gets to be a certain level and no one cares anymore. Right. This is all out the window. You need to look at those spells and decide how, how often those levels come up in your game. How how you know that's a low level spell to to feed everybody in the group. And if you have an army that you're traveling with and you just bring a whole bunch of low level clerics with you as part of your army, who cares? As long as your gods still kicking, who cares sure, whether they cut I off am. the supply lines? That's not an in game thing. D D doesn't want that. So you have to consider, you know, how strong are your casters. Is are there a dozen casters in the city that are over tenth level? Man, that has an impact on the game. That has an impact on the area. They are automatically people of note. If you have, that's the thing. And I remember in second edition, it would define like a ninth at ninth level, you get a keep. (laughs) That's what it means to be ninth level. You're strong enough that you have that you're like a lord. That you can own land pretty easily, own a keep pretty easily, um, all these type of things be the the leader of a monastery be the leader of a church that's around the level it starts so if there's tons of people like that and you want to challenge the players within pcs at very lot very high levels then magic's everywhere right there's and there there are ways to cap that like with magical laws such as exist in some of my areas of my gaming world where it's not legal to cast in the streets it's like having a gun if you cast a spell Like Just picture it if you walk into a bar today on Earth in the city you live in and you just have a gun, it sets some people on edge, even if it is legal. Now you pull it out for any reason whatsoever, all of a sudden you got everybody on edge. Everyone will see it. That's kind of like casting a cantrip in my game. You cast that spell, you might as well be shooting a gun. That's, you know, and I liken it back to that and yeah, magic's everywhere, but Man, ain't nobody using it out in the open. It's got to be used under under the order of the king for these purposes or in these areas. Or you have to have a license to do it. Therefore, you got to go to classes that say when you can and can't cast. So you can control magic doing something like that. And that's what wizard's guilds are for, too. Or wizard's towers or wizard's schools. Right. So if there's a bunch of people who cast high-level spells, you're going to have those things everywhere schools um science type built sciencey like magic is like science the way we view it today so like these buildings just dedicated to studying arcane arts or um, governing so you know however you want to do that um but i mean those are things that think about power level because are the npcs as powerful as the king by what level 10th level 15th level are they ever going to be as powerful as the king do you want them to be challenged by other npcs when they get to be 10th level who are those people because those become people of note that's why we create people of note to challenge npcs at higher level or be a checks and balances system because your your npc is the king is 12th level and it maxes out at ninth level for everybody else and you keep it a low-level campaign, by the time those PCs get to 12th level, there is no prison going to hold them. Right. They cannot be challenged or kept in check. And then if they leave the area that that person's in, they are the gods. <laughs> so,
0: you know, and, and I know that's a relatively low level to, to use as an example, but... Well, no, but you make a good point, because uh, especially just... I mean, going back to your story about the clerics, like, why? Yeah, why would you have to worry about food and water if you have clerics around, even for a small fee? You know, you wouldn't have to worry about food or water for the most part. And it's, and that, yes, that would have a huge impact on the world that you're creating, especially if there's a um, overabundance of, say, a certain type of animal that used to be used as food and now is just, you know, just kind of seemed as. Uh, could you know animal control at that point um, so let me ask you this then like with those sorts of decisions um, obviously you want to have an idea but at the end of the day is that something that you're going to want to know before campaign time after campaign time you're going to want to know that um, those are
1: going to be campaign based okay now, now you can set parameters in your head or on paper if you'd like and i've done right that. Like if if if
0: X happens, then Y is the result.
1: Yeah, like, okay, I want this to be the cap. I want most of the kings to be this level, around, about this level. The gods are this powerful. The kings are this powerful. Lords are this powerful in this area for the most part. And then I go back in my head, that can change depending on what happens when we talk in-game. If I pitch that idea to my group and they're like, oh... So you mean this game's only going to be a short game because you've capped it. Like, we won't be challenged beyond 12th or 15th level. So you're probably going to be done storytelling at that time, but we want to play these characters forever.
0: Mm, Okay.
1: So then it's like, oh, okay, well, do I want to DM this group in my game world? Um, Because I didn't write it that way. Or can my game world handle that? Can, it, can I kind of rethink or can I have a new area where it's only that high level and why would it make sense? So again, you know, like we talked about a couple of uh, weeks ago, be ready to change at any time. And whether that be a physical change to your world or let's just pretend that this is the way it is from now on. I mean, I had to do that when I've changed editions twice now. So, True. So that being said, I mean, I had to go through massive imports of new races and monsters. And when we went to 5th edition recently and said that I'm going to play 5th edition in my game world, oh, what a headache, man. What a nightmare. Because <laughs> I it's all based on race. It's all based on what was in the 3.5 rules books. Right. So... I mean, I had some things that were already available because of supplement books that I included, like Asimar and Tiefling, and then they, lo and behold, become part of the core, couple of the core books, Right. so I, that was easy, but everything else, Tabaxi, oh, what a godsend, thank you. <laughs> uh, that's what I've been looking for. I created um, uh, Kitsune in my game, and Kitsune just means fox, and I believe Japanese, but but it was it was believed that foxes could turn into people, right? And oh so, yeah, yeah. So, and so Kitsune. and then and I've seen like in um in like anime, I've seen fox people that are really cool looking. Like man, that could exist in my game. Kitsune, Katsune, and then Magic the Gathering had it mm-hmm. as a, as a type. I don't know, ten or fifteen years ago. It's like yeah, man, I really like that concept, and I researched. What you know, these all these ancient beliefs, and made it into a 3.5 dude, and it just didn't work very well. And I made I made it again for fifth edition because they gave us Tabaxi, and it's like, well, that's kind of like what I was trying to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I can make Kitsune more like this now, and like they they actually work really well together. And, and then there's Kenku as well, beautiful stuff. But it was a nightmare to import into my game world and have it make sense at the same time. That's what the cataclysm's all about.
0: Oh, okay. That makes
1: sense. Yeah. Cataclysm changed things. Um, everything. And it allowed for me to say, yes, I want to insert new races. Why? Because there's these areas where these people came from that weren't there before. Right. And that's kind of the mystique to the cataclysm. It wasn't just a regular old earth shaking. <laughs> it wasn't just a regular old storm the sky fell in one area and islands appeared out of nowhere in other areas and huge land masses are in a place before where we never sailed maybe it was there but it doesn't make sense because they have this amazing navy so that's part of the mystique in my game like what how did we get here it's part of the mystery of it well the gods know the gods made it happen
0: so I feel like other than like basically what I would consider more grunt work and just to kind of clean things up and to kind of make everything look pretty. Like, I feel like I should start working on campaigns. Yes, and the, the
1: next steps are going to start to tie to, to campaign building. Like, um, what I would recommend, and something I do, is I'll make a random list of monsters that can appear in each area. We touched on this last time, but I'll put a d10 list and put 10 monsters that are low level in this area or maybe a d8 these are levels one through six maybe and then level seven through 12 another one another d8's worth of monsters eight different things that you could encounter here some of them might be still from that basic list but in higher numbers if that makes sense like detrith i put on all three lists you can encounter A small band of small Detrith on list 1. A larger band with bigger Detrith in it in list 2. And in list 3, which is your super high level stuff 12 and higher in my game, I rarely play past level 17, 18. Hmm. Because I really feel like anything past level 12 starts to fall apart and become pain in the ass as a DM, but that's a different story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I have another D8's worth of creatures. You know, and that D8 there might be like uh, royalty Detrith or whatever, or you know, not necessarily royalty, but like
0: Just super, higher level super
1: high, powerful yeah. With other types of creatures involved and what have you. So, you know, make those type of lists and that'll start to really give each a little more character to each area as especially if like something appears on the list more than once or something appears across several lists across several areas, you start to then to find those monsters and their place in your world, like their frequency, how often it's going to come up. And you don't necessarily have to roll on those lists. I I sometimes do, but more often than not, I know which, I'll just look at the list and be like, these are the things, and I pick them for the campaign. So I have the lists already made, I do the campaign, and it's going to be, well, the story is about this, and instead of rolling, I just pick them. These make sense for the story. But if I want to do a random encounter later, it's like, oh, well, you guys did something I didn't expect. Okay, therefore we will roll for an encounter right? and see what comes up. Um, I encourage, when I do campaigns, I encourage having both types of encounters. Um, So having those lists predetermined in large, sweeping areas of your world will be extremely useful and very geared toward Ready to start writing campaigns.
0: Tables, fun.
1: Mm, yeah, they're the most annoying <laughs> thing to make and have the biggest <laughs> impact on the game. Yeah, if you use them well.
0: If you okay. don't, I mean,
1: and you know, a lot of people can argue that, and I can, I can hear the arguments coming at me as I say this. <laughs> uh, but the difference between using those tables and not using them is the difference between winging it and being prepared you can be prepared and still wing it but you cannot wing it entirely and have stuff prepared with zero pre- backup with your backup's gone your backup's gone if you yeah. just wing it the whole time uh, a lot of those things for me that i do prep and p i hear all these dms say this time and time again like don't over prep for your games don't and i say it to people because i see them doing it and then people are like oh i just i don't want to over prep but gosh you got to do some prep and having that prep there and never using it to me i like that i feel good because then i feel like well i made these encounter lists that i really like and it helps and what it really did was help me to find the areas and it's kind of like the map you've made your mm-hmm. players are never going to see that map no. It is not meant for player consumption. Neither are the tables. It's really there for me. To, so I can look at it and know what that area is like. Know there's a um, like a society of monsters and creatures there. When you start looking at that next to the flora and fauna, next to the laws, next to what cities are there, next to who's in charge, you've really created a feel. You've really created
0: a, an ambiance. So okay, so I need to build. I need to make some tables. So we got, so we got a creature table or a monster table. Um, what else? What other? What other? Like other tools would benefit um, uh, in terms of name the world building aspects.
1: Name lists. Um, and people say, oh, isn't that for? Aren't you gonna use those name lists for campaigning? Nope. I'll use them for every campaign. Um, I got. I got a book of names that I've created, where I've looked up and cultivated from. Uh, we and I think you posted in one of the show links the name generator tool. Yes. Okay. We'll do it again. Um, cool. Because I mentioned it again, sure. Um,
0: <laughs> the, the
1: good thing about it is that I can go through and if I find something that works for this specific area and like this is what the names are going to be like there, and I know that names don't mean dick to you, but it means something when when. <laughs> we're We're
0: gonna have that conversation
1: (laughs) so if you got an area that's totally different people than this other area make a list of names for men and women that are common there that way when you're winging it later and they talk to the barkeep at a bar you didn't expect them to go into or a fucking goat tender that they didn't expect like oh yeah and you see in the background a goat tender on the hill it's just his silhouette you're just setting a scene they're like we want to go talk to that goat tender right oh where are we his name is blah blah blah. and his name will help define the area if you just if you just say pete it's fine no one's gonna fault you for that but if you want pete to have any impact on your game world You pull his name from one of these most common names in the area lists that help you determine how to make names, help you determine what kind of consonants they use often, what kind of sounds they use often, um, if they put like weird emphasis on weird syllables for some reason, whatever that may be when you're doing it, and then you have a different set of names that matches like the city name or the fucking mayor's name or the king's name, and it's the same style. And it kind of matches it's gonna help create that feel that way when you start hearing these specific hard consonants lots of C's uh, like like all the like Roman names all in with s right when you hear casus when you hear um, opius when you hear spurious all these names you know that where they came from you know because that's an, I use those Roman-sounding names for Einoch. And if you're in another part of my world later on and you've been playing in my game world and then you hear uh, Tiberius is one of the character names and then he says he's from Inoch, it all makes sense and it feels right. It feels good. It feels like a, um, a society. And right. you can start to picture who he might be there if you understand that society as a character. Um, or we can just give him a name like Pete, and then I have to sit there and describe it all to you over and over. Like, oh, he's from Ainok. He looks like he's from Ainok, or what have you. But if I just say Spurious... You it, have an idea already. And then I start to describe the way he's dressed a little bit, you might be able to put together whole stories in your head about who this guy is. Just like in real life. Like You can tell what kind of person somebody is by the way they dress. And that might right. seem... Um, dubious or uh, whatever, but it's not. It's simple. It's just simply equating it's it back to a culture. the way your brain works, yeah. yeah. You're relating it back to a culture, making it relatable and understandable, and you're helping define these subcultures in your area by doing right. so. So that's yeah. another
0: Monsters,
1: that's names another cool tool.
0: Um, Monsters' names. I can't think. Give me one that. more, Jay. Okay, one more. Need, one more tool. I need one more. <laughs> um, one more table to make.
1: Oh, table. I don't know if it's gonna be a table. Oh, okay. Um, I maybe some random NPCs or, um,
0: just like some uh, character. Um, what you call?
1: That's more. Um, no, see, that's more campaign building. When you start making True. NPCs, no matter what, that's campaign building. There's no way yeah. to make that world building. That's just not how that works. Um, we, did we talk about your gods and their relationship?
0: So we t- we talked about me doing gods, and I still have yet to do it.
1: Okay, well that's gonna be another really good tool for you. It's okay. um, it may have all the impact on the world on the world may have a I all. Oh, I was going to say all the impact in the world on your world. Hmm. Okay. So it may have this enormous impact. It may not. Um, you can either – you can take one of two approaches to bringing these gods in. And uh, you can either take the approach that as I either handpick or bring a whole pantheon in, um, that these certain gods, I'm going to match what area I built and find a god that is already similar to what I've described. And then sure. – mold that God that already exists, either from Egyptian mythology, D&D mythology, old school D&D mythology, wherever. Take that God and you say, well, I'm gonna change a couple little things about it or I'm just gonna do bring it straight in because it makes the most sense with what I've already created. And it's not gonna have a huge impact. Or you can be like, you know what? This area is godless, but I want a good God. And then you go through, not sure what you're looking for maybe, and then you find something that may have an enormous impact on your game and you let it. You let it help right the area. So there's two ways to do that. But you got you're going to want to have them somehow related to your people. Otherwise right. it'll feel hollow cuz I see that all the time too where people like say, "Oh yeah, everybody in this city um, worships this one god," but you don't see the city you don't see any impact on. You the don't city. see a reflection. Yeah. Yeah. No. No relationship. Um, well, what's their role in the society? Do they act as law keepers? Do they act as spiritual guides for the populace? Or do they also act as a spiritual guide for the king? Do they only act as a spiritual guide for the king? Do people look at this religion in such and such way or such and such way? There's so many ways to view religions. Or I've also seen the opposite to be true, which is maybe even worse. Like, oh, there's a temple of all these gods in all these cities.
0: Mm, Yeah, that wouldn't be true either.
1: Also not true. Um, There can be lots of gods worshipped in one city. Absolutely. In Rome, many gods were worshipped. That's the Roman way. And that's why the Roman god pantheon is so huge because they worshiped tons of different gods do you have areas right. like that do you have areas that worship one god what is the impact what's the relationship
0: thanks for listening to this episode of the D 420 podcast for everything D 420 related check out dnd420.com if you'd like to reach out to us you can find us there on the website and on youtube at dnd420 lastly as always if you'd like to support the show You can do that by telling another DM about the show and by visiting us on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and review. Thanks for subscribing and being a part of our work here at D&D 420. We will see you next week.